Okay. You know, one of, uh, one of our funny memories that we have as a family occurred when we lived in Phoenix. Lisa saw this, uh, this thing advertised by the city parks and recreation department where one of the local parks that was pretty close to our home was having an event where you brought your family and you pitched a tent and you spent the night there. Of course, before all of that, there were activities and games and food and fun for the whole family. Now, the first thing you need to understand is I'm not a camping type of person. I'm a Hilton Hotel kind of a guy, just just the way that it is, okay? I like hot water in the morning. I like a soft, comfortable bed. I like air conditioning in the summer, and I love to have clean sheets. I guess I did enough camping when I was a kid to get it completely out of my system. So honestly, I do not look for opportunities to spend the night somewhere outside of a secure building. I just don't. Well, Lisa told me she thought this would be a fun thing to do. A great memory for Brooke. And so I said, well, sign us up. And you had to make a reservation. So she made a reservation for this thing. Well, when we arrived, we scouted the place and we strategically pitched our tent where we could go directly to where the restrooms were if we needed to. We ate the food. We enjoyed the festivities and the games. And later that night, we went back to our tent in order to go to sleep. We weren't there, but just a couple minutes when a siren started blowing. And we realized that there was a fire station located right next to the park. (laughs) And in Phoenix, whenever a ambulance goes out, fire trucks go with them. So all night long, these sirens were were going and and, um, they just went on and on throughout the night. And and whenever it happened, we would awaken. But that's not true. We weren't awakened because we never ever went to sleep. Because one of the other things that I forgot to tell you about this particular park is that it was known for having live peacocks. (laughs) And that leads me to ask you, have you ever heard a peacock scream? Then watch this if you haven't. Birds are not like roosters. They don't cry out when the sun comes up. These crazy birds let it fly all night long. And here's what I think. This is my summation of the whole thing. These particular peacocks were born and raised and fed in that park. And they heard the sirens going off their entire life. And they knew that if their cries were to be heard, they had to be louder than the sirens. So this particular breed of peacock, they evolved into a breed of of super screaming peacocks, all 25 of them. And I know I'm being a little bit dramatic, but deal with me. So about 4 a.m., I had enough. I said, we're we're getting out of here. Uh, This park became a place where I didn't want to be. And so we got up and I said, let's go. We're going to get some sleep. And Lisa asked, what about our tent? I said, don't worry about it. I'll come back for it later. And surprisingly enough, our tent was still there at noon the next day. (laughs) Needless to say, we definitely created a memory, albeit one that wasn't all that great, but one that we can really laugh at now. 
But let me get to a more serious note. I want to ask you something this morning. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't want to be? Perhaps you were in the military and you remember boot camp. Or you recall a time when you got orders that sent you to some distant land and you were far away from your friends and far away from your family. Maybe you've worked for a company that transferred you out somewhere to a place you didn't want to go. And every day you thought to yourself, I don't like this place. It's not at all familiar. I don't want to be here anymore. Perhaps you had a time where a a friend had betrayed you. And in the midst of all of your pain, you thought to yourself, I don't want to be here. I am sick and tired of this. I don't want to be in this relationship place any longer. Perhaps you have wrestled with grief or you've dealt with financial hardship, or you've navigated through a very difficult medical diagnosis, and every day you thought, I am so tired of this, I don't want to go through this anymore. Do you you understand what I'm talking about? Can anybody relate with what I'm asking you? Have there ever been a time when you were at a place where you didn't want to be? Well, as we continue in our very short series that we've titled, I Promise, where we are reestablishing our belief and our trust in God to do what he says he will do, and where we are looking at areas where he clearly makes a promise to us, today we're going to look at his promise of hope. Hope is a wonderful thing. Truly, it's a wonderful thing. And I might add that it is what is greatly needed, especially when you find yourself in a place where you don't want to be. And in today's text, in Jeremiah chapter 29, it tells us of a time when the Hebrews felt just like this. It was 587 BC, and after years of ignoring warnings, God had judged the nation of Judah and their unfaithfulness. You see, the people of Judah, they had, been, they had repeatedly rebelled against the principles upon which their nation had been found. They had turned their backs on God. And so as God promised, he withdrew his protection from them. And the biblical record shows us over and over and over how God had warned his people. He had made it very clear to them that if they continued in their faithlessness, He would use a pagan power to once again conquer them and lead them back into captivity. But those warnings, they had fallen on deaf ears. And now because of their foolish infidelity, God had allowed the same chosen people that he led out of slavery from Egypt 800 years earlier to return to bondage. But in this time, this time it was in Babylon. Well, our text this morning record something that happened at the beginning of those seven decades of captivity. Yes, 70 years. It tells us about the first Jews who had arrived in Babylon and who, like me at that noisy park in Phoenix, just wanted to go home. That's all they could think about. They didn't want to be where they were. Now understand, this was nothing like me and my stupid funny story. These were sad people who had lost everything, their homes. They'd lost their culture. They they had lost their freedom. And in many cases, they even were separated from their families. They had been brought to live in a strange land with a strange language and, and unfamiliar and strange customs. 
And in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, there is a letter that God inspired the prophet Jeremiah to write and to send to them. So in preparation, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, the book of Jeremiah, Old Testament book, chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, except for those of you on the front row. Sorry about that. But you can also follow along on the screens behind me. But this letter shows God's unending compassion because it includes instructions as to how they are to deal with this captivity that I might add was created through their own fault. In this letter, God explains to them exactly how they were to face being in this place that they didn't want to be in, even though they deserve to be there. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 23, it's a long piece of scripture. I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisha, son of Shaphan, and to Gamaria, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, 
and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth and curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of, Col- of Coliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. And in my name, they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it and am a witness to it, declares the Lord. Wow. Those are some pretty powerful words from God where he is married very clear to these Hebrews about this place that none of them want to be in. And you know, the longer that I live and the more, the more I can actually relate to these Jews who heard this letter being read to them. And maybe you feel the same way because in a very real sense, you and I are like them in that we too are exiles of sort. What I mean is this, as Christians, and I've said this many times, and you've heard it said many times, this world is not our home. We are just temporary residents. And if you haven't figured this out yet, you must understand the truth that this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven where we will spend eternity. And this is what Peter was getting at when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And then he continues on in 1 Peter 2.11 by saying, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So you and I live as Abraham did, where it says in Hebrews 11, 9, and 10, by faith, he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. I love this, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. If everyone here today and everyone in this world could just wrap our minds around this truth, that we are just temporary residents here on this earth, that our time here in this dimension, the only dimension we know, that we put our all and all into is just temporary. If everyone could just realize that the short amount of time that we have here is just, as someone said, a blip on the radar screen of all eternity and could grasp 
what is promised to those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, when our time on this earth is complete, then everyone would serve the Lord and they would look forward to his coming. But sadly, just like these exiled Jews, we forget God. We forget his promises, his commands. We forget his goodness. And so then we try to do life on our own and we turn our backs on him and we lose sight of eternity. And we even start to think that what we have here on this earth is as good as it gets. And then we sell out to the world. And that's where our real problems begin. And the truth is our alien status is the main reason why we find ourselves in situations and places where we don't wanna be. And that's why we long for a place where there is no heartbreak, no loneliness, no fear, no betrayal, no sickness, a place where we truly feel at home. So I believe that there is indeed a great deal that we can learn from this part of the book of Jeremiah. There are principles at play here to help us deal with those times in, during life's disappointments and those times when we become homesick for heaven. And the first helpful principle that our Heavenly Father makes clear is we must learn to be content. It's a big word to unpack, and it means different things to different people. But look at verses five and six again, where God says this, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. In other words, God advises these displaced Jews to bloom where they are planted and learn to be content in this foreign land. This is a very important principle for you and I to embrace because so many times we think there must be happiness somewhere else. And so we naturally search for another toy, another place, another career, another relationship, another possession. In short, we think more of something is what will ultimately make us happy. So we seek more status, more security, more health, more pleasure, more thrills, more of so many different things. And honestly, folks, this is such a huge driving force in our culture here in America. Author Michael Drosnin wrote a book about a man whose name became synonymous with this hunger for more, and I'm sure this man is familiar to you, and I'll give you a few hints here. He wanted more wealth, so he built one of the greatest financial empires of his day. He wanted more pleasure, so he seduced or paid for the most glamorous women that he could buy. He wanted more adventure, so he set air speed records and designed, built, and piloted the world's most unique aircraft at that time. He wanted more power, so he acquired political clout, which was the envy of others. He wanted more glamour, so he bought Hollywood, and he bought studios, and he counted the stars. And Drosnin wrote this about how this man's life ended. He was a figure of gothic horror, ready for the grave. 
emaciated, only 120 pounds, stretched over his six foot four frame with a thin scraggly beard that reached midway into his sunken chest, hideously long nails in grotesque yellowed corkscrews. Many of his teeth were black, rotting stumps. A tumor was beginning to emerge from the side of his head. Insert innumerable needle marks. Howard Hughes was an addict, a billionaire junkie. Quite a bad description of someone at the end of their life. I wonder if Howard Hughes had pulled off another deal or if he had made another million or tasted another thrill or, or romanced another girl, would it have been enough? Would, would it have been enough to satisfy or make him happy? Because obviously he wasn't a happy man. Of course not. His experience shows us and, and many other people who have followed down that path clearly shows us that, that, that more is a myth. More never brings satisfaction to man's soul. As King Solomon put it, striving for more is nothing but chasing the wind. This is because we were made for something that this world cannot offer us. So getting more of the kinds of things this existence provides always leaves us more empty inside. Because again, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. We must remember what 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Author Robert Hastings wrote a popular story about an imaginary train ride. His story was called The Station, and I want to read you an excerpt from it. He writes, tucked away in the recesses of our mind is an idyllic vision. We see ourselves on a long journey that crosses mountains and plains. We're on a train, and out the window is an endless procession of cars motoring down nearby highways children waving up at us from the crossings, cows grazing on distant hillsides, fields of corn and wheat curtsying in the breeze, lakes and rivers, city skylines, and village halls. But we don't really notice. What we keep thinking about is the final destination. We will arrive at the station to marching bands and waving flags. Once we get there, our dreams will be fulfilled. The jigsaw pieces of our lives will finally be assembled. The picture will finally be complete. In the meantime, we restlessly roam the aisles, checking our watches, ticking of the stops, always waiting, waiting, waiting for the station, always wishing the train would go faster. The name of the train is more. The name of the station is satisfaction. When we reach the station, that will be it, we cry. When I'm 18, when I buy a new 450 SL Mercedes, when I get that next promotion, when I lose weight, when I get married, when we have kids in the house, when the kids grow up and get out of the house, when I've paid off the mortgage, when I can afford a second house, when we finally retire and all the pressure is off, then I will live happily ever after. We keep thinking that the train called more will get us to a station called satisfaction. But the fact is trying to pursue satisfaction by having more is like trying to run after the horizon. Hastings point here is very, very simple. The joy folks 
is in the journey. And it comes through being content and trusting God to provide for our needs day in and day out. And when we are fully mindful of the fact that one day we will finally be home, we will be to our heavenly home. Hastings continues to write this, relish the moment is a good motto, especially when coupled with Psalm 118.24, which says, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So stop pacing the aisles and counting the miles. Instead, swim more rivers, climb more mountains, kiss more babies, count more stars, laugh more and cry less, go barefoot oftener, eat ice, more ice cream, ride more merry-go-rounds, watch more sunsets. Life must be lived as we go along. The station will come soon enough. And I would like to add, if I can, to his list, join God in his work every single day, wherever you are, even if it's in a place where you don't wanna be, and focus on the needs of those around you instead of always focusing on your own needs. Instead of striving for more of this world's stuff, be content with investing in the things that have eternal significance. If we do this, folks, you and I, we will experience a foretaste of the joy that we will know when we finally do arrive to our heavenly home, amen? John Ortberg writes this about our arrival in heaven. On that day, we will see God face to face. Then our longings for glory, beauty, love, and meaning will be fully realized. Then the restless human race will finally cry out, enough. And God will say, more. So to deal with those times where we're in a place where we don't wanna be, we've gotta first learn to be content where we're at. But then secondly, God gives us more wisdom for dealing with difficult days when he says this, pray for your captors. Look again at verse seven. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. When, when these Jews heard this letter being read to them. I am sure that they thought, you want us to pray for a community that carried us into captivity? Jeremiah, have, have you lost your mind? These people you're talking about are the enemies of God. These are people who ransacked the city of Jerusalem. And now you ask us to pray for these people? Well, see, God can ask us to pray for our captors, those people whose decisions and whose actions put us in places where we don't wanna be. And he does this precisely because he is God. And he loves all people, even the people who make it their, their life's work to make our lives miserable. And in this and dozens of other texts like it, God calls us to follow his example. He doesn't want us to be bitter toward the people who have hurt us. He doesn't want us to nurture hatred to the non-Christian world. He wants us to be a blessing to the non-Christian world. I believe with all my heart 
that God hates this us versus them mentality that we embrace in so many evangelical circles. That is not at all what Christ wanted for us. He wants us to pray for people even if they don't always treat us the way that we feel we deserve, even if they ignore God's loving laws and try to make us do the same. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 5:44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen, anybody can pray for their kids. Anybody can pray for their family and their friends. That's easy. Most people can pray even for their pastor, but praying for people who, who you don't get along with is what makes Christian love different from every other kind of love. So God says, pray for your captors, but he also says, if they prosper, you will too. And he's right, of course, because no one ever benefited from hating another person because hatred destroys us from the inside out. It makes us hateful. It makes us bitter people. So we really do prosper when we love our enemies and pray for them. This principle vividly brings to my mind the story of, of Steve Saint. Well, the whole story of even his father. Steve Saint was the son of a man named Nate Saint. He was one of those missionaries who was killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador in 1956. I want you to listen to Steve Saint's test, part of his testimony. He writes this. We lived on the edge of the Amazon jungle and my dad was my hero. Instead of having a car in our garage, we had an airplane, which I thought was normal. Every day I would watch and try to help my dad get ready for the flights he would take that day. Then I would stand on the bank by our house and watch dad lift off in his little Piper PA-14 airplane and fly off into the jungle. In the afternoon, I would return to the same bank and wait for my hero, my dad, to fly back from his missions. And I never knew what he would bring back with him. Sometimes he would bring back other missionary kids so they could go to school. Other times he would bring back Indians who were sick or who had been bitten by snakes and other animals. Every afternoon was exciting as I waited for the plane to return because even if he came back empty-handed, it was still my dad returning. Then one day I watched my dad fly off into the jungle and he didn't come back. After my dad was gone for several days, my mom took me into her room and she said, Stevie boy, daddy isn't coming home. I was confused because I couldn't imagine anything that would keep my dad away. Why isn't he coming home, I asked. My mom explained he went to live with Jesus. Now you can imagine this little boy's grief. I'm quite certain he didn't want to be in that place at that moment. He just wanted to be back home in America with his family. But this boy, he had been raised right. And he must have been taught how to love and pray for his enemies because he goes on to say this. A couple years later, our little home was filled with excitement again. We learned that dad's sister, my Aunt Rachel, along with Aunt Betty and a Wudani woman named Dayum, were making plans to move into the jungle. They were setting out to live with the very people who had killed my dad, as well as the four men I called Uncle Jim, Uncle Pete, Uncle Ed, and Uncle Roger. They were hoping to establish a connection with the Wudani so that they could tell them about Jesus' love. One day we got word that their ministry had progressed to the point that it was safe for my family to join them in the jungle. We moved there 
And slowly these people who had viciously attacked five men I loved and thrown their bodies into the river to be eaten by the fish, these people took me into their lives. They became Christians. In fact, Min Kay, the one who killed my dad, became like a father to me and a grandfather to my children. Then when my sister Kathy and me became Christians, two of the original killers baptized us at the same spot where our father had been killed just a few years earlier. When you read this testament, when you read his entire testimony, it will move you because Steve Saint obviously lived by the principles found in this letter that was read to the Jews in captivity. He had, been, he had learned to be content even in his grief. He had learned to pray for his captors. And in answer to his prayers, those men did prosper by becoming Christians. And Steve Saint would say that he prospered as well. I'll show you a picture of, of Steve and Cain. These are real people. And this is a real story that I shared with you. So let me ask you something. Is there someone in your life who has put you in a place where you don't wanna be? Is there someone you hate because of the hateful way that they have treated you? Well, if there is, the Lord tells us to pray for them. Because here's the deal, folks. You cannot pray for someone and it not change your view, your perceptions, your feeling about them. Praying for someone who has caused you harm takes a certain amount of compassion. And it is through that compassion where God will soften your heart and he will change your heart towards them. Well, the third thing that God tells us, don't listen to bad counsel. Look again at verses eight and nine. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. There were false prophets. Hebrews telling Hebrews that, that they would be going home soon when God was telling them they would be there for 70 years. They were insisting that the captivity would be over before they knew it. And, and, and no doubt they were tickling people's ears to hear that kind of news, but it wasn't true. God told them 70 years, that's how long, and that's how long it was. And you know, today we have counterparts to these false prophets. I'm talking about people whose promises are so promising while we live in this fallen world that is not our home. For example, some say that if you follow God close enough, you'll have big homes and fancy cars and all kinds of money and you'll have perfect health. Some people say that when someone hurts you, you get even with them. Some say they know when Jesus is going to return. Some say God doesn't exist and that there will never be a judgment day so you can live however you wanna live with no regret. Some say that all religions are the same and that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Some say that human beings were once apes. Some say if you don't get your life right this time, then you will come back reincarnated as another person and you'll keep going through that cycle until you do get it right. I'm not sure what right is, but you gotta get it right. 
We must not allow ourselves to be drawn into bad counsel. Now, there are times while following bad counsel, it might make you feel better in your captivity for a short period of time, but in the end, I'm here to tell you it will only bring you greater heartache. We must build our lives on the infallible truth of the word of God. So the Bible has to become your guide. It's unchanging truth that will help you to stand firm. Just like Ephesians 4.14 says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. And then in verse 10, 11, we find the most important thing to remember as we go through those times and we find ourselves in places that we don't wanna be. And that no matter what happens, no matter how difficult life becomes, we must remember this one unchanging truth, and that is God is always in control. Don't ever doubt that. It may seem like he's not. He's got the whole ball of yarn in his hand. He has control over it all. Listen again to verses 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. There's hope. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I'm sure that as the Jews heard this, they were thinking, you mean we gotta live in this rotten country for the next 70 years? Most of us are gonna be dead by then. What kind of a plan is this you've come up with, God? But if you look at the Old Testament, you will see that God accomplished several great things in the lives of his people during this 70-year span of time. Let me quickly cite four of them to you. First, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were three of the captives that were taken to Babylon. And according to Daniel, in chapter one, they went on to become three of the best administrators that country had ever seen. They became role models for young people all over the world. Secondly, Daniel, another of the captives, was able to interpret the, the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a reward, he was made ruler over the entire province of Babylon, a Jewish young man given rule over the province, the province of Babylon. And furthermore, with Daniel's help, King Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in the one true God. In Daniel 4.37, it says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This would have never, ever happened to Nebuchadnezzar if it weren't for the presence of the Jewish people in Babylon during those years. Third, because the Jewish people were able to live in peace under the leadership of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they had time to write some of the greatest books of the Old Testament. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Psalm 137 were all written during this 70-year period of time. And then fourth, 
And most important of all, during this 70-year period, the Jewish people began to realize that they needed to get things right with Almighty God. Their, their timeout punishment, if you will, worked because it gave them time to see that they needed to repent and they needed to apologize for the mistakes that they had made, not only individually, but as a people in the past. They began to see that Jeremiah was right when he said in Jeremiah 4.18, your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment, how bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. So when we look at the big picture, we can always see how God is working behind the scenes. He was working in the hearts of the lives of the Jewish people who were in exile, even though they couldn't see it, and even if they didn't want to acknowledge it. He had a plan both to prosper them and us through their punishment. And this story should make all of us realize that life isn't always as it seems on the surface. There was once an old man who was very poor and in an attempt to, make, to take care of his family, he pooled all of his money and he bought a horse. People in the town thought it was a foolish thing for him to buy a horse because things happen to horses. Sure enough, a few days later, the horse came up missing. And the town people came to the old man's house and they said, oh, what a tragedy. But the old man was very wise and he said these words, he said, we don't know yet if this is going to be a blessing or a tragedy. A few days later, the horses returned and trailing behind him was a herd of 15 wild Mustangs. Again, the townspeople came to the old man's house and they said, you were right. This is a blessing and not a tragedy. But again, the old man answered, well, we really don't know yet if this is a blessing or a tragedy. A few days later, his only son was breaking in one of the wild Mustangs when, it was, when he was thrown. And while lying on the ground, the horse trampled him and shattered his leg. And the townspeople returned saying, it's true, what a tragedy. Your only son is now crippled for life. But this happened right before a war started, when all the other young men of that community and that town were called away and not a single one of them returned alive. When the people from the town, they came to speak to the old man, they said to him, now we understand. You get the point of the story? You and I, we are incapable of judging the effects of good or bad in life until the story is complete. We just do. We jump to conclusions. We think we have the kind of knowledge to determine these things, and we don't. We don't have the necessary perspective to do so. Things that look bad can actually be good things in the long run. And as Christians, we can trust that this is always true because we are children of God. We are children of the one who reigns. By reading the Bible and by looking back, even at our own life stories, we can see how that our sovereign God always was weaving in and out of the events of our life to fulfill his grand scheme and not ours. We can also know as Proverbs 16, 19 says, in their hearts, 
Humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Listen to me, High Point. God's plan isn't always what we think it's going to be, but God's plan is always the best. And you can bank on it. Even if we don't understand it all at the time, even if we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, even if we would have chosen a completely different path for ourselves, even then, we need to trust that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. This is our hope. And this is our promise from God. So if you are stuck this morning in a place where you don't wanna be, then you need to heed God's loving instructions. With his help, number one, learn to be content because he will help you to find joy even in your difficulty. Number two, pray for your captors. Pray for those people who make your life difficult and hard. Number three, do not trust bad counsel. Instead, build your life and base your decisions based on the truth of God and not what some friend tells you that thinks he's got all the answers. And number four, hold on to the fact that God is always in control. He is working behind the scenes to prosper you. But God says one more thing in this letter, in verses 12 and 13. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will find me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I love this promise because it reminds me that in the hard times of life, whenever I have cried out to God, he has heard and he has listened and he has always drawn me closer to him. Amen. Scott, will you and the worship team can please come forward? I'd like to ask all of you to stand if you would. I wonder how many people in this place are in a place right now where you or they don't wanna be. You may be dealing with circumstances right now that are frightening, painful, unjust, difficult, and maybe you have simply lost all kinds of hope. Well, I wanna tell you this morning something that you already know in the depth of your heart, but you don't want to admit. God knows and God understands. He understands what you're going through. And although our desire is that God would instantly change our situation, and he is certainly capable of doing that, please understand that God always has a plan. And I have found that his plan is never like I imagined, but his plan always leads to my betterment. Sometimes it comes through enduring a bad time and the natural growth that occurs from enduring that bad time. Because God will use every situation in order to build our faith. But we can't let that happen until we learn to trust and to believe in his providence, in his promises, and most importantly, in his power. As I said a thousand times, 
We live in a fast food mentality culture in that we want immediate answers and we want immediate solutions to all of our problems. We don't like to endure difficulties. We don't want to experience any growth pains. We simply want it gone and we want it gone now and a side of french fries to go along with it. But what I've tried to impress upon you this morning in your minds and in your hearts is that you can trust God especially in a season of difficulty. He is well aware of what you are going through. And he has given you hope. And he has given you promises that you will not only survive, but that you will come through this thing stronger than ever before. And your trust in him will grow as well as your faith. The question becomes, will you allow God to do the work that needs to be done, needs to be accomplished in your heart while you're going through this difficult season? I want to open this altar this morning to anybody who might be going through a challenging or a, or a trying season in your life. For you to come down here and to ask God to help you to trust his providence, to trust in his promises, to trust in his power. Ask him to help you to be content, to help you to have the capacity to pray for your captors, and most importantly, to trust his plan in all of this. And if you're here this morning and you have never given your heart or your life over to Jesus, then I encourage you to come down to this altar and seek God. If you do, as the scriptures earlier said, if you seek him, you will find him. The Bible says in order to receive salvation, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. He came to this earth, he walked this earth, lived a perfect and a sinless life. And he was arrested and he was beaten and he was crucified on a cross. And the blood that he shed atones for your sin. It is the cleansing agent over your and my sinful life. And when we ask him to forgive us, he wipes all of that away and we become a new creation. The confession is just the saying those words to God, whether it's in your mind, in your spirit, or out loud. That's what the confession part is. You believe and you confess that to him and he becomes your Lord and Savior. But this altar is open to anyone who has a need. It's open to anyone who just might want to spend some time in prayer. It's open to anyone who might want to just come down here to praise him for his goodness and his faithfulness to you. This altar is open to anyone for any reason. I want you to understand that I say that all the time. I don't want you to think you have to come down for a particular reason. We open this altar because in my mind, it's a travesty to leave church on Sunday carrying a burden that you did not come down to the altar and lay it down at the foot of the cross and walk away. And that's what you need to do. You need to lay it down. You need to say what you need to say, pray to the Lord, and then you get up and you walk out and you leave that burden there. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? So while the worship team sings, if you'd like to come down and pray, the pastors will come around, we'll lay hands on you and pray for you. And then in a short while, we will close this service in prayer.
是真。Heaven's mercy Yeah.
at the altar continue to pray and of course they can stay here as long as they'd like I'd like you to bow your heads with me as we close this service in prayer precious Lord we thank you for your promises we thank you father for your provision and for your power in all of our life circumstances especially pray for those who are going through a time that is difficult and maybe they're having a hard time seeing that that's very normal it's very human when things get tough we tend to forget about your promises I don't know why that is but that's just the way we act sometimes and so God I ask that you would encourage them this day that as they leave this place they will walk with their back straight, their heads held high, realizing they are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are acutely aware of what they are going through and you know how it's going to end. And it always works for the good of those who love and serve you. Let them carry that promise out of this place today and throughout the week and throughout the month and for whatever amount of time this season is, that they would find joy in the journey and not focus on the bad, but to look at the good things that you are doing that they can see, but also to thank you for the good things that they can't see going on behind the scenes, in the spirit realm. God, you are at work and you are doing great things in their life. And we thank you for that. So I ask you to calm nerves and fears today. I ask you to bring peace into hearts that are disturbed. I ask you to bring encouragement into hearts that are discouraged. And Father, as they leave this place today, they will go with hope in their hearts for their future and what you plan to do in and through them. Father, I pray that today as we go our separate ways from this place, that your Holy Spirit would go with us guiding and directing our steps. The places we go, the things that we do, and the conversations that we have. And Lord, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down. And Father, that we would, we would shine like bright lights in a very, very dark world that needs Jesus. Let your love shine through us in such great ways, Lord, where people will come up to us and say, what is it about you? And we can tell them all about how good you are and what a life lived for Jesus is all about. In fact, Father, I pray for an opportunity this week for each one of us, bring someone into our path that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ with. Amen. And Father, I also pray that till the time we meet together again, you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us, any sicknesses or disease that might come upon us so that we can come together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your presence not just in our hearts, but your tangible presence in this place today. Pray that you would touch lives throughout the week as only you can do. And as we leave here, Father, pray that we would go in love, the kind of love that you showed to people who encountered you day after day. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here today.